Hi, this is Steve Roost, and you're listening to Health Tech Hour on UK Health Radio. Each week, we give you the best news, views, and interviews from the health technology world. From CEOs and founders to entrepreneurs and clinicians, the companies and people that are shaping the future face of healthcare. All on the world's number one talk health radio. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Tech Hour on UK Health Radio with me, Steve Roost. Each week we bring you the best news, views and interviews with the leaders, clinicians, CEOs and today investors that are changing the face of healthcare in the UK and beyond. As regular listeners know, I'm the CEO and founder of a health tech company myself called PopDoc. We have developed a range of smartphone-based blood tests and currently rolling out across the country. Thank you very much to PopDoc for the support of the show. If you want more info, head to mypopdoc.co.uk. I'd also like, as ever, at the top of the show to say thank you very much to UK Health Radio and to everyone listening live on UK Health Radio. Also, quick shout out, UK Health Radio, all of the shows on UK Health Radio are now available in podcast form on Spotify, which you can check out if you want to, uh, not just this show. I would also say thank you if anyone's listening to our show on Spotify uh, or watching it after the fact on YouTube or, in fact, any of the other podcast channels. We're up there. So our numbers on podcast are going up and up and up, which is great. So thank you very much. Um, Now, today's show, as I said, we have a leader from the investment community. So investment community being the companies and funds that invest in companies that then do stuff to make us healthier or to improve everyone's life or to, you know, allow us to order a takeaway at like one o'clock in the morning, whatever it is. That's what the investment community is. So this week we have Lena Zakharovskaita. I don't think I think I did that okay. who's the principal (laughs) investor at Stride VC. So Stride VC are one of the most dynamic early stage VC funds uh, in Europe at the moment. And they were kind of put together by one of the veterans of the venture capital space, a guy called Fred Destin, um, who back in the day, Um, was one of the founding partners of a thing called Atlas, which funded kind of like some of the biggest names that now seem like really old school traditional companies. But at the time, they were kind of groundbreaking. So anyway, Stride have backed a ton of companies, some of which I'm sure you'll know, like Deliveroo, for example. Um, But the reason why Lena is on the show today is to talk about what they're doing in health, why that's interesting to them. So Lena, welcome to the show. How are you? Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. So your background wasn't necessarily in, I know that you worked at somewhere called Secret Escapes, but you actually started life as a scientist. Is that correct? That is correct. Yes. <laughs> I had what, what type of scientist? Yes, I am. Um, my journey into tech has been a little unconventional. I, my academic background is in neuroscience and pharmacology. Um, I've always loved natural sciences. Um, and that was, you know, the space I gravitated towards. But funny enough, um, quickly into my studies, I realized the life of <laughs> academia is not necessarily the pace, is not necessarily my cup of tea. Um, what? What do you and, mean? Uh, I don't understand what you mean, Lena. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that that did happen. Um, and so then it was, you know, a journey of um, trying to break 
into into tech, right? Okay. With, a, with a different background. But did you come into tech wanting to do like health tech or just any tech? You know, I it was back back at the time. It was sort of the 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 London tech ecosystem was buzzing, and there were so many interesting projects popping up. And and I, being a very naive, you know, scientist from a completely different field, I was just attracted to the energy and and the pace and of of the tech ecosystem of the startup ecosystem, and uh, and so it really was about you know trying to find my way um, into into this world of startups. How did it go? Like, was it easy, tough, hard? Like, what? I mean, how do you think it went? <laughs> I, I mean, well, I don't know. I mean, my my, I, you know, I I left university and and kind of got myself after sort of two or three years in advertising, where you know, I, I don't think advertising and I got on all that well. I think it was like a mutual feeling, to be honest with you. I'm not sure the industry was too sad to see me go, and I certainly wasn't too sad to see the industry to see the back of the industry. Um, I, I found it, I. You know, I I know lots of my friends, you know, from what worked in technology and tech companies. And I, you know, I got really lucky with where I ended up. But I know some of the people found it kind of tough, you know, like if you land somewhere and it doesn't work out and then you go somewhere else, it doesn't work out. It can feel like pretty, pretty tough. But I certainly agree that there was I mean, I guess this was what probably at like the late 2000s, early 2010s, stuff like that. The buzz around London was something pretty special. Yeah. You know, it really was about uh, I believe in serendipity. Um, I believe in engineered serendipity as um, like you make your own luck. Exactly. And so it really was a path of a lot of no's, a lot of dead ends, a lot of conversations that don't go anywhere. And people look at you and, you know, they're like, what do you mean you want to go into tech? Like, you don't have an MBA. And, you know, like people actually say that to you. They say that to you about not having an MBA. I would I think that that is a negative predictor of success. in tech. That is, yeah, that is an interesting point. But, um, but yeah, you know, I, I eventually um, bumped into this program called New Entrepreneurs Foundation okay. in London, um, and NEF, as we call it, it really was my MBA, if you like. Right. So it, it really, it was this year one, one year long program, which gave me the knowledge. Because frankly, I knew nothing about entrepreneurship at that point. It gave me the skills and it gave me the networks to to find my way, you know, to break into tech. And and so that's how I joined. That's why I joined Secret Escapes. So um, did you choose like Secret Escape? Like actually for everyone listening that doesn't know, what how would you describe Secret Escapes? Secret Escapes is a global travel brand um, that... Uh, connects luxury travel for less, basically, in a marketplace model. So it really is about, you know, if you imagine beautiful infinity pools uh, that we all dream of being in right now. I'd love to be in. <laughs> no, I mean, I guess after speaking to you, my next would be the infinity pool. Yes, check them out. Check them out. Um, it's a so it's 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 luxury travel for less, right? And uh, it really was. At the time, um, a notable startup, you know, it was yeah. we just did our series, we, we just did a Series D by by Index, and there was a lot of excitement of going into new markets and launching new products, and it was just this perfect, perfect springboard for me yeah. into a high pace, high growth um, environment where everyone was so hungry. 
And so kind of the sense of urgency was so strong. And then the contrast to, to my life, you know, before uh, I, I loved it. I loved it. So the, it was, it was a one year long placement that turned into an amazing four years because I loved it so much. I just, I didn't want to leave. <laughs> and also presumably they kept you on, which is always a good thing. <laughs> um, I, I joined as a generalist um, in marketing. So working directly with the CMO uh, for a sort of, I think at the time it was 50 people org or so in, in, in the marketing. So across brand performance and CRM. And um, I was this, I had a very fancy title, special oh. projects. Oh, more like special operations, you know, like. Special operations, yes. Okay. Um, which was, you know, fascinating in itself. But, and, you know, one project grew into more initiatives, uh, more sort of cross-department collaboration. I guess you could call it entrepreneur in residence. That's another yeah. sort of title people use for this That's type of... That's a very fancy title. I always like seeing that, entrepreneur in residence. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, uh, and so I kind of expanded more into uh, product, into product, tech, strategy, at the end of the day, becoming the, the head of growth for the business. So incredible, like really, really interesting projects, pushing the boundaries, making bets in an organization that at the time, you know, was, was, was big. Like it was, you know, and kind of finding our way back to quick iteration cycles, operating again, like a small start lean, you know, lean startup. Um, It was fascinating. I loved it. Why not stay or why not go to another company? What was the move to, to VC? Or to in, well venture capital to go like to go and be an investor. You will see a pattern here. You know, every every four or five years or so, there is a bit of um, okay. a bit of a <laughs> I move. I call it existential crisis, but there is some something in me that you know I love wearing many different hats and I love connecting the dots. Um, and so I think that you know makes me a sort of a true journalist at heart, I guess. Um, And so I was ready, you know, I was ready for my next adventure. And uh, I remember coming up to, you know, the team at uh, Secret Escapes. And now in retrospect, I'm like, wow, I was a little crazy. At the time, it it felt so natural. And, you know, I asked them, I, I said, hey, guys, I loved it here. It's time for me to move on. Help me find my next thing. Okay, um, nice. <laughs> and we did. And we did. I love that. Yeah, I want to leave. And can you help me? <laughs> right. Um, it's like in dating, you know, help me find my next yeah. boyfriend. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, and uh and and Fred Destin, he he did a seed round back in the day into Secret Escapes. So um okay. Tom um the founder and himself knew you know knew each other really well. And um and I think from the first moment I met Fred, I was like, wow, for the first time, it's, you know, the VC that we actually speak the same language. Because I was an operator, like I was not an investor. So yeah. that really, really um, resonated uh, with me. And, um, and how have you found it? Like, the, what are the biggest differences so far that you've kind of come across, you think? It's an interesting feeling. It's It's been uh, 18 months now since I joined right. the dark side um, of venture. you know that sort of deja vu when it's the moment where you feel like it's a similar type of puzzle pieces but you're just looking at it from a different angle um it's the constant sort of known and unknown novelty mixed with you know sort of 
stability and things that you're familiar with. Um, So it's a very, it's a very interesting transition in many ways, both professionally, but also on a sort of personal level. And I think uh, it's interesting, right? Because back at Secret Escapes, my role has always been cross-functional. So growth by design, right? It is multidisciplinary. There isn't a single sort of, you know, you need to pull in marketing, you need to pull in a brand when needed, product, tech, commercial, sales, etc. So I thought I can operate in ambiguity and, you know, big problem, multifaceted problem sets. But man, little did I know that in early stage venture in a journalist fund, <laughs> yeah. like the next level. Um, right. So it's it's definitely been interesting. <laughs> well, also, like, I mean, the timing is kind of amazing, right? The last 12 to 18 months of the financial situation. So that was going to be one of my questions, which is like, Where's all the money gone? I mean, where's it, where's where's it gone, Lena? Where's where's the money gone? Um, yeah, um, it's uh, you know, it's incredible that I think um, you can never get bored in this job because you are because you're there is micro cycles, right? There's micro kind of environment around you, and things change so fast as we have seen, and so like. This time last year, you know, the 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 ambiance was so different in the ecosystem yeah. versus today, where we are today. And it's uh it's interesting to be in it and to watch it. Um, but also, you know, in many ways, um it's interesting to see how different funds adapt and adjust. And we are in a long game, right? Remember, this is not like high frequency trading or something. Like it is long-term projects you know, it, it's that that's the nature of, of, of the business. And so um, these sort of cycles and we've seen so many micro cycles in crypto, for example, we can, I'm sure. Well, we can yeah, I mean, that. crypto is its own, you know, like that's, yeah, that's, that's kind of a whole separate kind of maelstrom of, <laughs> exactly. of yeah. Exactly. Um, so it's, uh, it's really, it's really interesting to see how, how much is about, at early stage, especially when there's no data, right? Very like, data. or very little data, or it's very noisy. And so is it really statistically significant? You know, those cohort numbers you have, like, there's so much about the kind of the belief in the founding team and in the big vision. And uh, yeah, price, I mean, of course, it's being adjusted, but we are in early stage. So it's still very much, you know, game on. <laughs> right. But so it's not like, you know, because it's definitely I think we're at like the lowest level of VC investment, particularly in health for for quite a while. I mean, it's definitely, definitely dropped off. Is it that the money's still there and it's just not being invested or the money's like gone somewhere else? It's moved to another sector or like what's your view? I think, you know, if we look at 2021, the first half of 2022 for health tech in particular, it's been it's been great. Right. A lot of great companies were back. There was so much, you know, of course, the COVID crisis and all the sort of acceleration of, you know, finally digitalizing healthcare. And, you know, it's, 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 it's been great. I think, as you say, this year is challenging, you know, for every field. I don't think health, if something probably health, you know, it's one of those somewhat, I guess, crisis proof industries where you know we're always going to need to go to a to a gp right it's not a sort of um 
a fancy, um, I don't know, luxury holiday for that regard. Um, yeah. And so I, you know, I still think there's a lot of interesting projects in the space. There's a lot of great founders who have this long-term mission of, you know, solving great problems and helping helping patients and helping you know the the systems um and so it's it's still very much it's definitely harder though deals are taking longer investors are taking their time doing you know the due diligence um so if you're a founder in the space i mean it's it's interesting to hear your point of view we've talked earlier um about your journey but it's uh i think there's definitely a readjustment needed in terms of expectations and you know frankly cash flow management just because things take longer yeah, I definitely would agree. I mean, it's a completely different, it's a completely different market from, you know, even like seven or eight months ago to now. And what I find interesting, like to your point, is that, so like to your, to your point around, you know, if I was in a luxury high end something startup, right, that, that was relying on, you know, large numbers of customers spending volume of discretionary income on something that was relatively non-essential and not unique so not necessarily like i still think people are going to spend money on front row seats to beyonce for example which is why ticket resale you know the ticket marketplaces event driven things are still very very popular right like for example the average price for a super bowl ticket this is the highest it's ever been now you know the trading data so for the one that's coming up this weekend or next weekend or whenever it is so i think that that's all fine what i find interesting is like in health like you say the long even the short medium or long-term trend data is that there are effectively more customers i.e more healthcare organizations need more help i.e they're spending more money with companies to on their goods or services or so on so the actual pull factors are increasing but actually there's been this kind of funding crunch if you like so for example if you were in a sector that was booming in theory the companies in it would find it easier to raise money. But for some reason, I don't I don't necessarily see that trends through health. And I just wonder whether it's because so much of the spending comes from customers that are considered to be difficult, like the NHS or like these larger healthcare organizations. It's not the same way as like, okay, I understand if, if you put 10,000 pounds a month on Google PPC, I can kind of understand your metrics and your LTV and your you know, your customer acquisition and things like that. Whereas like healthcare is a little bit different if your customers are these large organizations, but I don't know. I don't know what you think. I think it's, you touched upon a really interesting point, you know, NHS, like in so many ways, we are so privileged in this country because it's such a great innovation bed for, for testing out new ideas. You know, it really is a world leader actually on a global scale, but when when it comes to a certain level of sort of moving beyond, you know, a, a few trusts and actually achieving certain scale, it's, um, it's challenging. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, so, so I think like what's really interesting and to the extent that anyone listening knows this, I apologize for, you know, for going over ground you already know, but I'm assuming a lot of people probably don't, but, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but like generally speaking, the venture community, so to speak, doesn't, as this is the UK only, doesn't necessarily place a lot of value on NHS revenues within early stage businesses or, or, or kind of, you know, seed stage or slightly later businesses because of what you just said, scaling within the NHS is very hard. Would that be fair to say or, or would you disagree? 
it's uh, I think it's definitely challenging, right? Because because of the long sales cycles and because of the complexity. It's a multi-stakeholder enterprise level consulting type of sale. And so it's 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 difficult because of so many constraints that we have in healthcare in general, right? Which is the sad thing about the industry. And but it's interesting when you're a journalist fund like we are, yeah. you know, your point of view about sort of playing in health tech versus say looking at another fintech deal, it yeah. forces really interesting conversations around the table. Yeah, I, so I get I quite like to get into that, right? Because I hadn't actually considered that, which is you're quite literally not comparing apples with apples. You're comparing investment decisions across categories, potentially, right? Which I think is really interesting. So again, for anyone listening, and correct me if I'm wrong, Lena, but broadly speaking, like the way that you do your investment decisions, let's say you're a health tech only fund or a healthcare only fund, you're comparing people within a category. So should I invest in this healthcare business or should I invest in this healthcare business and which one's better and which one's not and so on and so forth. Whereas actually what you're saying, because you do a lots of different things, you're actually stacking up different companies from different sectors against each other, which is a, which is kind of a different way to, to, to do that investment decision, which I think is really interesting. Correct. And so much of that, especially at the, back to the early stage, right? So much of that goes back to the founder and the founding team, because how else are you gonna like you say compare apples with you know yeah whatever oranges yeah <laughs> it's difficult it's difficult because and i think a lot comes down to actually under it's it's this dimension between going broad and going deep and yeah. actually as a generalist i believe that we need to come with a prepared mind right we need to know the industry and its constraints and the risks right and yeah. then assess whether it's on our thesis as an yeah. investor, is that the place we want to play or not, right? And those decisions usually are very interesting because you're bringing people from different fields. And, you know, in the partnership, we have people from, you know, all sorts of uh, different industries with different experiences, different points of view. And so some of those conversations are, you know, we have people that are very bullish about metaverse. And if they could, we would make the whole fund on metaverse. And then we have people, you know, saying, hey, can we look at web 2.5? Because we don't think we're web, you know, 3.0. Yeah, we're not quite at three, but we're more than two, but we're not quite at three yet. So is there like a web 2.6.6 or whatever? Yeah, no, I, 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 I hear you. Um, so I want to dig more into that. And I think that in the next part of the show, we can go into what you said there, which is the investment thesis, which is sort of like the basis upon which you're, you find companies interesting or, or not interesting, um, and definitely how that relates to health, because I'm really interested to understand as a generalist fund, how you even come up with a thesis within health, which itself is like enormous. I mean, there, there's all kinds of different things that you can do in health. So let's take a quick commercial break now, and then we will be back in two minutes with Lena Zakharaskaita, uh -huh. yeah, second time in the show. I think I got it right again. Um, and we will be right back. Principal investor at Stride VC. So, yes, back in two minutes. UK Health Radio. The station that makes you feel good. Apples and pears. Beef and skittles. Cider with rosy. Common or garden. Ant and Deck, Fish and Chips, Mum and Dad. UK Health Radio and Health Triangle Magazine. Each is good by itself, but enjoying both is always better. 
Add Health Triangle magazine to your monthly health regime. Check it out at ukhealthradio.com. Strawberries and cream. A cancer diagnosis can be scary and stressful for everyone involved. Hello Love is a contemporary living space and well-being center in central London where anyone can come and learn about illness prevention and non-toxic practice. Inside, you will find a vegan restaurant, juice bar, and holistic dojo that encourage lifestyle changes to help heal mind, body, and spirit connection. Cancer patients are offered free sessions. To find out more, please visit us at hellolove.org. The station that makes you feel good. Hello and welcome back to this week's episode of Health Tech Hour, live with Lena Zakharaskaita, the principal investor at Stride VC. So before the break uh, of Stride VC, the venture capital fund, um, before the break, we, we just started to get into your kind of investment thesis which which again for those of you listening that's kind of well why didn't you explain what an investment thesis is seeing as it's your thesis so I don't know why I'm doing it but yeah sorry about that please go on so we're an early stage venture game right which means that we typically invest in pre-seed seed early series a companies in the tech space across different sectors we're a generalist fund so some of the, there are certain areas that for specific, for, from the specific portfolio construction point of view, you know, capital, resource, et cetera, we're not going to play in, which we make very clear upfront. So like what? Hard, hardware, pharma, pure, pure pharma, uh, single molecule drugs, you know, the things that are very much, you know, very specialized binary risk uh, by empirical risk. Usually it's, it's just not, it's, it's right. not. Right. So what you mean, so what you mean is, you either can make the drug or you can't. There isn't like a pathway where like you if you, if we think you can get to a like if we think you can build a platform selling something and, you know, there's an upside case where it's this. But there's also a middle case where it's that and a downside case. It's not binary. You're either going to be crap. OK, or really, really good. Is that kind of what you mean? Correct. And what's really fascinating, actually, um, which we'll, we'll do a little detour and come back, um, this sort of emergence of tech bio. So we used yeah. to say biotech. No, no, that's outside of our game like that's tech bio. very much on the edge. Now you think about, you know, tech bio and it's, it's a, kind of a nice term. And, you know, but it really I think it really does encapsulate this breakthrough that happened in biology as a field in the last 10, 15 years where we're going from what used to be an empirical science, right? Where you do it, you know, you produce, you run your high throughput sequencing, the drug either works or it doesn't. If it doesn't, back to the drawing board versus where we're moving towards today, which is a much more engineering-like discipline where we can iterate, right? So in startups, we always talk about being agile and iterating and testing and learning the, the, the cycle of, you know, the pace of learning and discovery and experimentation. What's really incredible now, if you take, you know, we, we take a COVID vaccine as a great example. It used to take, what, six, seven years for the end-to-end process for a vaccine to be produced. I mean, you'll actually, you'll, you'll know better than me, than me about this. Now, because of this 
amazing, you know, increase in access to the data, the underlying data, the the reduction in cost in sequencing, amazing new tools that we have available, we can really turn this, we can turn biology into a much more engineering-like discipline. And that's fascinating. And hence, for us as a fund, actually, it's it's still very much, you know, an, an ongoing conversation. But some of that investment fees is if you want to play in health, and if you want to, you know, if you're looking for the next big frontier, a lot of marketplaces have already been created. A lot of problems have been solved. Um, there is, we need to look beyond, right? That's the game. We're an early stage investor. We need to see what what the big emerging trends are. And I think Tech Bio, for example, is um, is definitely a big one. <laughs> yeah. So the show, the last week's show, um, was with Jason Foster, who's the CEO of RE Biotech. So um, he's a great guy, and we did a great show on Tech Bio. I think it's a really interesting area. So if anyone's interested in learning more about Tech Bio, head to Spotify or YouTube. You can get the show with Jason. Um, yeah, I think it's really interesting, like the idea that you can cure cancer. Um, this therapy or CAR T cell therapy can cure cancer, but they just can't make enough of it cheaply enough that everyone can get it. Um, mm-hmm. I think is sort of interesting and like trying to figure out the challenge isn't about the binary decision about whether the therapy works or not. That's been done. This is now about can you scale up manufacturing of a highly, highly individualized treatment to a point where the cost comes down low enough that healthcare systems can adopt it at scale, which is, like you say, it's an engineering, manufacturing, operational challenge with a biology sort of filter, you know? Yeah. And it's it's interesting. You asked me earlier about the, the sort of healthcare, the map of healthcare is so vast. There's so many places to play in, right? Yeah. And uh, especially when you're a small generalist fund that doesn't just do healthcare, it's like, where do you play? <laughs> yeah. And why, so, why do one thing and not another thing? Like, how do you even... Right? Yeah. Exactly. How do you, how do you even assess that? And, and I think it's interesting because if we look at... So if I look at kind of a very simplified version in my head of the health tech map, if you like, we have digital health, right? We have a big trend. I think we have these three big trends going on. We touched upon one, which is the the sort of the frontier, the translating research into clinical practice. And, you know, Aurea Biotech is a great example of that. We we can talk about a few more. But on a sort of digital health side, on the consumer patient side, I think what's, what's, what I'm seeing, it's the sort of the existing, um, at least in Western medicine, structure of the sort of patriarchal doctor is the the god yeah. <laughs> and doctor knows the best yeah. um healthcare model into a much more patient-led approach where you know i think because of covid i mean people just got so much more aware and interested in the health in their health in self-healing yeah. in uh we have you know digital therapeutics where you can some other companies and mental health space that you know, are have the promise of um, helping to deliver therapy without a psychiatrist in the loop, right? A fully sort of automated digital solution, um, which of course has its own uh, questions, but that's for for another time. Um, And, but but we have this sort of putting the patient first and and kind of driving the decision. And I think that that involves, you know, 
overlooked conditions, things that his chronic health, women's health, long COVID, mental like health. Yeah, this is one of the things. So when we first started PopDoc, where so the, the 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 you know as people regularly listening will know, but you know as we talked about before the show, so it's a smartphone based way to give yourself a quantitative blood test. And when we started the company, um, a lot of the time, a lot of the diagnostics plays were really focused on. Let me put something on a lateral flow test that's never been put on a lateral flow test before. So like, okay, I've done a monkeypox lateral flow test. And then suddenly like the next day, there's 50 different monkeypox lateral flow tests. Or, you know, I've done H5N1 bird flu on a lateral flow test. And then again, within a week, there's like a gajillion people. We saw this in COVID, you know, like the, the, the commoditized, there are so many people in, um, I would call mainstream lateral flow development which really is a yes no response like yes you have it no you don't that that's like highly highly commoditized and as soon as someone can do something everyone can do something so um but that was where a lot of the diagnostics people were at like that was really what the the aim of the game was like novel biomarkers novel biomarkers was the cry that we heard all over town (laughs) and we we really decided to focus on the largest disease areas where access to testing was a problem and you very quickly realize it's not just access to testing it's how do you um uh, where there's diseases where regular testing, there's a heavy incentive to the system and the patient. Like there's a big payoff if you can regularly test, better health, lower cost, lower number of people going to hospital. And then the final piece is where there's a big so what factor. So if you are testing regularly, then what? Okay, well, it's access to treatment. It's access to digital therapeutics. Like you say, there's like a pathway where whereas a lot of those yes, no tests. Okay, it's a flu lateral flow test. COVID a bit different, but but still now, even with a COVID test, you test positive, you just stay at home. What are you going to do? So anyway, so that was how we thought about it. And we were talking to a lot of people about cardiovascular disease and the five marker lipid panel. And we cardiovascular disease is the single biggest killer, not just of men, but of women in the world. So whenever you think of and my co-founders, my co-founders, a woman, actually my wife, Kieran, um, and we've got a third co-founder called Vlad. But anyway, the, the point is, is that that all of the existing if you think about like images of people having heart attacks in films on tv in adverts it's always like an older guy that goes down clutching his chest right and 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 weirdly the symptoms associated with women having heart attacks are actually different than men having heart attacks so with women it's much more geared around fatigue low energy headaches things like that than it is around chest pain arm pain anyway the point is is that this whole area, when we started to go out to talk to people, they were like, no, it's not novel. No one cares about cholesterol. No one cares about cardiovascular It's like, this is the single biggest killer of men and women. And no one's really paying attention to this. Now, thank goodness the kind of the wheels turned in our favor massively now. And, you know, with NHS contracts and all those kind of good things. But it was really interesting for a while. We felt like we were completely insane. You know, like that we were the ones taking the crazy pills. We're like, wait, like, it's like you, if someone has elevated cholesterol and then therefore through that app, they can get an immediate access to a statin prescription, which effectively reduces their risk of having a heart attack to a negligible level, meaning they don't go to hospital. Like you're saying that's kind of boring and we're not that bothered about it. And like no one really cares because it's more about whether or not you can test for monkeypox. Like, OK, that's we were <laughs> like it took us a while to try and work that through. But, you know. I feel like being seen as the the crazy ones. Uh, it's a part of the part of the founder journey, right? If you want yeah, to, be yeah. <laughs> they, were like, they were like, "Well, cardiovascular disease. Does anyone 
really care. I'm like, well, it does kill the most people in the world. So I think some people probably care. You know, I think it's kind of a thing, you know. So, um, but 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 to your point, COVID sort of was very helpful to a lot of companies, not just us, but just more around healthcare systems came under so much strain that yeah. they realized that they whether because they're ve- there are very good existing treatments for cardiovascular disease like this is this is not trying to cure obscure types of cancer that are really treatment resistant the the the, the, the treatments are there they're ready they're ready to go it's about how can you test enough people to get enough people through that through that funnel um which i i think might appear unsexy you know versus doing something i don't know different but but it's highly effective and it's really interesting because the sort of emergence of this um, B2C to B as yeah. a good model, as a go-to-market strategy, you know, in healthcare in particular, um, when you're dealing with patient groups that have a really strong, usually unmet need yeah. with the tools that exist, it's really, you need the data, right? If you're, we're, we're talked a little bit about selling into NHS, like, you need to show that your solution is working, right? And but it's a bit of a chicken and an egg because if you don't have any distribution, well, how are you gonna how are you gonna get there? And yeah. so it's sort of um, at least theoretically, I'm seeing we're seeing a lot of companies actually aiming at this sort of utilizing the the kind of the B two C to B approach to really yeah. kickstart the cold start problem. Um, yeah. which that's is, what um, that's what Babylon Health did when they yeah. first launched. Right. Because Ali, who's been on the show as well, another I mean, I'm not going to take full credit for his success, but he was on the show. Um, the the um, and Ali's been super helpful with PopDoc as well. So um, I'm sure he's not listening, I'm sure he's, you know, whatever, whatever he's doing. But thank you very much, Ali. Um, but that's what they did. Right. Because back in the day when they started, which I think was probably like 11, 12, 2012, 2011, somewhere in that range. Like, I think that they were getting thrown out of meetings in the NHS when they were talking about digital, you know, mm-hmm. video. And he, they were like, the, 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 the people were like, no, 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 the patients aren't going to want it. So I think they then did exactly what you said, which was like, let people book private video appointments and like, just then went back with the data being like. Let's see, exactly. Sure? Let's let the numbers sure? speak. <laughs> Absolutely. But, you know, there's another interesting point, um, which sort of plays into this um moving away, I guess, in some extent, which we're seeing, it's so interesting. Like when you zoom out, this move from sort of centralized institutions more towards the shifting power to individuals. Um, I think about the data a lot, right? Especially in healthcare. I mean, we have, who owns the medical record? If I get a CT scan, who owns that data and who monetizes that data? And do I get any benefit from that data being sold on my behalf? <laughs> yeah, and so, it, I mean, or yeah, like, if, like, I think you'll mean like, because there's loads of, co- there's, I mean, there's tons of companies in the UK and elsewhere that are saying, well, let us analyze your health records and we can help you, the system, make improvements or, we're, 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 you know, our AI, our AI model will help you do case finding or, diagnosis or and all those people are making money off of your records it's an interesting question right and then you look at some of the work that uh, i know blockchain is a, a loaded topic right now but you look at the power of the, the underlying distributed ledger and you look at the dao structure you know autonomous distributed autonomous organizations and the sort of the the 
the value extraction back to the actual end user, I think it's so promising. We're seeing a lot of projects popping up in the space, actually merging this sort of health health data and Web3. Um, yeah. size is the new fancy term, decentralized science, which includes some of the health tech as well. I think it's uh, it's very interesting. Yeah, I think so. Just for everyone listening, how would you describe Web3 or define Web3, which I don't know if anyone's listening. I mean, it's it's sort of, you know, in investment circles, it's 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 quite the hot topic. Um, I think it's kind of crossed over a little bit, but might be worth if you want to just define it for everybody. Probably one of these terms that, you know, VCs came up with. Uh, sort of made, Someone made... came up with it. I don't know. You've got to have, everything has to have a label. I'm the this of this. <laughs> it's um, it's a new iteration of the web. Let's put it like this. But really what it is at its core, it's uh, it's much more than a technological breakthrough in terms of the blockchain technology. It really is about addressing a lot of issues that we have with centralized institutions um, having centralized power, right? And so Web3 emerges as this movement to take the web actually, in fact, back to its own roots. If you look at the early iterations of the internet, you know, it was created as a tool for scientists actually to share openly um, public, uh, you know, research and, and, and papers. And so it's it's this uh, movement that encompasses many different industries um, with the promise of, uh, yeah, creating a new, a new, <laughs> a new internet, the better, the better version of the internet. Yeah. I think, I mean, I think that this, we've got to go for a commercial break in a second, but I do think this decentralization of health data is interesting because it's something that's been talked about for a really, really long time. And, you know, the, the blockchain has obviously got way, way, way further with um, finance, right? You know, like Bitcoin, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it, I'm not quite sure if it's done too much in health. Maybe it has, and I, I don't know, but it's definitely a super interesting area. So um, we are going to be back in two minutes for the final part of today's show with Lena Zakharaskaita from Stride VC. Um, we'll be back in two minutes. UK Health Radio. The station that makes you feel good. A cancer diagnosis can be scary and stressful for everyone involved. Hello Love is a contemporary living space and well-being center in central London where anyone can come and learn about illness prevention and non-toxic practice. Inside, you will find a vegan restaurant, juice bar, and holistic dojo that encourage lifestyle changes to help heal mind, body, and spirit connection. Cancer patients are offered free sessions. To find out more, please visit us at hellolove.org. A for horses, B for mutton, Seymour Cheeks. Dig for victory. UK Health Radio and Health Triangle Magazine. Each is good by itself, but enjoying both is always better. Add Health Triangle Magazine to your monthly health regime. Check it out at UKHealthRadio.com. UK Health Radio, the station that makes you feel good. Hello and welcome back to the last part of this week's Health Tech Hour live with me, Steve Bruce and Lena Zakharaskaita from Stride VC. So um, before the break, we were kind of talking about decentralization with data, healthcare data. So 
have you seen what what are the kind of high points of that have you seen or is it still kind of in its infancy and i don't know what 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 have you what have you been looking at tracking in that space i think dsi as a movement uh is it's buzzing but it's very early right so we had a beautiful conference a few weeks ago dsi london with people from crypto community, with people from science and academia, with people from the industry. And it really feels, you know, meeting the founders and entrepreneurs, it really feels like this. there, you know, there are some great things coming up. Yeah. Um, it must be quite a good buzz, right? Because everyone probably feels like they're on the edge of the frontier <laughs> and, you know. It does, it does. And, uh, and, you know, I think it's fascinating because, if we talk about health healthcare data as one of the sort of the, the you know applications of um of blockchain technology the other one is uh science if we look at academia and it's 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 so closely related to to health tech um if we look at academia it's a 1.5 trillion dollar industry globally with a 60 to 70% depending on the field inefficiency rate in the form of reproducibility crisis, right? In other words, this discovery that we, we realized that all, so much of the research done in the last decade cannot be verified, cannot be reproduced. And so in other words, it's literally meaningless from the science point of view. What makes yeah, so science, this is science the, so this, the verification? Yeah, this, sorry, I'm sorry. Go on, carry on. I told you. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, all good. All good. Um, I mean, I find it absolutely crazy. Why is nobody talking about it? Or in well, fact, so I read a I read a book um, that in itself is not surprising, but I read a book specifically about it was called um, gosh what was it called? It's called ah um, uh, it was something like can is medicine sick or is me- can medicine be saved or is medicine too sick? And part of it was um, oh no can medicine be cured? That was it. It's a hmm. great book, and it's it was about a large part of it was about this central issue around the quality of academic research in pushing the field of particularly health and, and medical research in this instance forward and it, and it kind of came up with similar conclusions which was um the and this might be different to what you're going to say but the the point of this book was that um there's the the re, the, the the very fact of publishing research has become the be-all and end-all goal and the monetization and incentives are aligned with publishing at all costs and and not moving the fields forward and not generating quality data and not admitting when you don't succeed it's it's this kind of perpetuation or yeah perpetual perpetual cycle of being required to publish being required to publish which is just churning out junk research it's such a multifaceted issue the way academic research is shared, peer-reviewed, published, and ultimately funded, it's broken. The centralized system put in place at the end of World War II is uh it's running its course. It's not sustainable. And and these, you know, these um you put it in a beautiful way, these this pressure on the academics, this constant uh, you know, when the proxy becomes the goal, H index, yeah. amount of, you know, the citations you get in high uh, impact factor journals, when yeah. that becomes, then that becomes the goal. Well, this is what we're, end, you know, this is what we end up with. And actually, yeah, some of, and some of those journals, right, these 
people think about it as this. And again, I'd just like to clarify, I've not gone and independently verified this. It's because from a book I read. So, <laughs> you know, before I get yelled at, like I'm just being completely open, just sharing what I read. But these journals are, are owned by publishing companies. And this is like a multi-billion dollar operation. So they need new content, like any media outlet, they need new content. So they're supporting the fact that this research is coming out and being published. And, you know, then that they're complicit in the whole thing because they need to make their numbers. And you know what's fascinating? When your demand and supply is the same end user. Yes. A researcher. Yes. yes. They mentioned this. This is a, yeah, exactly. Right. Do you want to do you want to expand because I know what you're going to say and it's it's it this is this is such an insight. It's um uh, look what I'm going to say is science is fundamental to us as a society. It drives so many of the decisions we make and publishers and media in a broader sense and the way research is being shared. I mean it cascade you know we make decisions uh, that's the job of the governments. We make we have regulations that is informed by the research that has been published and is yeah. cited and distributed, and that comes from the fundamental science. But if that science is not verifiable, seventy percent of that is not. What sort of what does that mean for us well, as a society? And, and also, the buyers of these papers are the people who do the research or fund the research that goes into the papers. So like those people are not interested in at the moment, they're not incentivized to do anything other than continue on, you know, on the hamster wheel, basically. <laughs> it is a hamster wheel. And uh, and then you look at blockchain. Right. And and let's put all the hype aside. I'm not talking about crypto Ponzi yeah. scheme, get rich fast crypto bros like that. This is not yes. worked out well. Let's look at the actual technology. Right. And, and and the underlying science, for science to be reproducible, it has to be fair. What does that stand for? Findable, accessible, interoperable, reusable, right? Those That is fundamental. And then you look at blockchain and you look at the distributed ledger and you look at its uh, features like, you know, permissionless, transparent, uh, persistently uh, tracked, you know, and, and indexed on chain. It's like a match made in heaven. It makes sense. So in your vision or in, in this kind of, not your vision, the vision, so to speak, you would want a kind of a migration of scientific research to be sort of published, publishable, published on the blockchain. Is that what you, is that where this I, sort of goes? I, I think, I think that's the way forward. This reproducibility crisis, you know, it is a crisis. It's not just a, you know and a term we use it really is it it is it's bad <laughs> yeah i mean and like so, if, if, uh, yeah like 70 percent. the whole point of the whole point of publishing or used to be right like you said is that you put your results out there like this happens in physics all the time right where like like theoretical physics where they're like i don't know about this completely but this is kind of what I got. Now it's over to the crowd to try and see whether I'm right or wrong, because this stuff is so out there. I'm not completely sure. But, you know, over you go sort of thing. Right. Whereas like if, you know, in other places, then if if if, if that's not being possible, then that sort of really undermines the value of the whole crowd. 
I think it's, it, as I said, I think it's a systemic challenge. And so we need, you know, these sort of horrors, very ambitious projects, actually, that have an aim of redesign, redesigning an entire industry. It's not just publishing. It's not just peer review. It's also the way we share research. You know, today it's a PDF. It's a it's a manuscript. It's a piece of work that I <laughs> work on yes. for two, three yes. years, yes. right? Yes. Um, with uh, kind of the end goal of the beautiful narrative, the big breakthrough that you know nature is gonna publish. And uh, but what about all the incremental in technology? We always talk about incremental innovation and the power of this quick iteration cycles. And in fact, the composability back to my fair interoperable being able to build on each other's research and we have we have these silos today if you're if the way you're being judged or evaluated as an academic is through the amount of citations you get well you 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 will want to protect your ip so we have the yeah. same groups you know of people it's about incentives are, right like correct. if you as an academic it's not like academics in the grand scheme i mean look they're all doing fine right it's kind of like a job for life unless you totally you know, go off the reservation and get paid good money. But it's not like, you know, not like Elon Musk money, you know. So like they're, they're, if they have incentives to maintain their position or get promoted or to build their team or to, I mean, and a lot of academic positions are based around finding research funding. So they need to go out and find their own funding. And one of the decisions around who gets funded is, guess what? How big of academic you are, how many times you've been cited in the field, like how many you know, all of those type of scores. So it's all the, all the incentives are just misaligned. It's exactly. not necessarily the fault of the academics. They're just in the system at this point. I completely agree. And I think, and I really, I actually really believe that open science, you know, there's been a couple of attempts to kind of bring open science to life. And I really, it really feels like the sort of DSI movement has this promise of redesigning the technology layer, but also, as you right, like, rightfully pointed out, the incentive system too, because they go hand in hand. We need both. We need both. Um, it's you know what's really interesting and kind of takes me back to to you know um, where do you play as a journalist fund within health tech and how far what is health tech? How far do you take yeah. it? Um, I look at some frontier things. Um, I look at, you know, translating research. There is so much incredible research that's been done, even though a lot of it is <laughs> irreproducible, sadly. Yeah. Um, there, you know, there there is a lot of amazing work out there. And, uh, and in so many fields, so little has actually been translated into clinical practice. And I mean, take mental health as an example. We have amazing breakthroughs in computational neuroscience when it comes to evaluating, you know, the mental, uh, evaluating and treating uh, mental disorders. And um, I think more of this sort of translation from, you know, a scientist and an entrepreneur, you you think of the archetypes, they look very different, right, for most of the people. Actually, I think the more we can bridge this gap, the the less kind of the cool entrepreneurs you know it's all about sales and big you know kind of uh pitches and you know being out there like it doesn't have to be that way there isn't one I, way I, I, yeah I agree I mean I do think I don't, I don't really know altogether too much about the U.S. academic scene but I know quite a bit about the U.K. scene and you know there aren't that many universities and even within the universities that are good at this there's not that many academics that are actually ended up getting sort of spun out right so even at like you know, outside of like a handful, 
there aren't that many spin outs coming out of universities that in theory are have academics doing highly technical research right that has that is applicable in the real world and therefore where does it end up going like what the, where's the so what factor on it exactly and i think it's um i think it's fascinating to even if we're able to translate a pr- small percentage of some of the incredible findings that, you know, big breakthroughs in different fields, computational genomics, neuroscience, we talked about biotech, there's so much happening. Actually, there's so much that has been done in the last yeah. decade. And so that's the frontier I'm excited about when I think about health tech. When I think about health tech, to me, it really is the intersection of healthcare and technology, right? Uh, yes. <laughs> so, That's it. Yes. You've cracked it. Right? <laughs> um, that that's that gets me going. I'm excited about that. Um, so I've got one more question and then we're gonna have to end the show. So I wanted to ask about what's your feelings? There, there's there, there is quite a lot generally written for those people listening that follow in the space around um the potential lack of diversity within venture capital and within startups at female founder, female CEO, you know, female investor, um, you know, have you seen any, what, what's your view generally on that whole area? Uh, I mean, being a, a young uh, Lithuanian investor in, <laughs> in London, it's um, as an industry, I think we need to do better. It's a, uh, it's a challenge in tech. It's a challenge in finance. Um, Things are getting better. There are amazing incentives, you know, initiatives uh, of uh, getting women in tech and women in VC and, you know, these great, great initiatives, great projects um, to help and and change the status quo. Um, But I do believe that, you know, in a small way, we are helping to create the future of us as a society and the society is you know, it's diverse. (laughs) And so the more people in the decision-making power that can really help and, uh, and, you know, drive these conversations and and look at these problems from different angles and provide different points of view based on their personal experience, based on the background, based on, you know, many different things altogether. I think that's what venture capital at the end of the day, it's a, it's a simple business. It's about the quality of your decision-making, right? It's the bets that we place. And so the more I think diversity we bring into that, the the better I think we all do actually as a as a collective. <laughs> I would agree with that. That's a great moment to end the show. Lena, principal at Stride VC, thank you very much for coming on the show. And thank you very much to everyone listening. We'll be back again next week. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.